Revelation 12, 13 through 17. If you were uh, thinking, I'm not sure what I was thinking before we began this, that this would be a sort of light, airy, happy, clappy <laughs> uh, Advent season uh, in our walk through Revelation 12. Uh, you are, are probably likely disappointed by now, and uh, today will be another disappointment in that line as well. Uh, these are actually pretty <laughs> big, significant, weighty things uh, that I hadn't really anticipated, uh, delightfully so, but hadn't really anticipated until I dove in and started studying this. Great stuff, heaven's perspective on Christmas or what happened in heaven uh, when Christmas hit. Before we read the passage and look at it, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, your defeat of the red dragon, Satan, that ancient serpent, the devil, through our Lord Jesus Christ is something that we are praising you now for and will praise you forever for. This is our great hope. This is the most encouraging thing that anyone ever has or could do for us. And so we thank you for that. And as we look at Satan's response to being thrown out of heaven and his time shortened, and what that means for us as a church, we pray that you'd make us wise. We pray that you'd give us strength in our spines and in our resolve to serve you to the end, no matter the cost and no matter the deceit. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, Revelation uh, chapter 12 at verse 13. When the dragon saw, actually, let me back up to verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. A beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, this morning, this section uh, of the book of Revelation, really chapters 12, 13, even into uh, 14, begins with uh, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, this male child, this long-awaited Savior, the long-awaited Messiah, who comes forth from the woman who is Old Testament Israel, which is Eve, the whole line of Christ, and eventually, particularly, Mary, in accordance with the promise God made in Genesis 3.15, this section begins with the birth of Jesus Christ. Little did Mary know when she went to Bethlehem, along with Joseph, that all of this was happening in heaven. At Jesus' birth, there stood a great dragon ready to eat him. Again, it's a horrendous picture, like uh, the picture of a birthing room where a woman is ready to give birth, and upon pushing out her child, instead of a doctor walking in the room, it's a great red dragon walking into the room to eat her kid. That's the horrible picture here, the scary picture that's depicted. And we notice that indeed, from an earthly perspective, that little baby had no chance. But as soon as that baby was born, we're told he was caught up 
to the throne room of God and he rules the nations with an iron rod, which is a really quick, probably the most succinct summary of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have four gospels to tell us what that was. Here John tells us in the matter of one verse. So Satan tried on numerous occasions to kill Jesus. During his earthly ministry, he tried to take him out in Herod's day, tried to get him stoned or thrown off cliffs, and eventually tried to get him to go to the cross, which he did, but he wasn't smart enough to realize that Jesus going to the cross was actually God's foreordained plan. And I'd like to imagine, have to imagine that there may have been over the course of the weekend, beginning late Friday night into Saturday morning, there was a party going on between the devil and his cohorts. And then Sunday morning hit and all of a sudden <laughs> they're in deep despair. We have a resurrection on our hands now. Now we have a really big problem. What we thought was going to destroy God and his people actually served God's purposes. And now Jesus is risen after having made payment for sins. And then the success of Jesus' earthly ministry turns the tide of war in heaven. That's the picture that we're given. If you look at verse 7, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the birth of Jesus and his earthly ministry turned the tide of this war. And so now Satan and his demons are cast out of heaven. And it's the work of Christ, particularly his work on the cross, that has changed everything. And I say that because in Revelation 12, 11, as we looked at last week, we notice they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb. These are the saints of God. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So Satan has been and is being overcome on the ground of two things, we're told. So Christmas started this war that was long ago promised. Satan's cast out of heaven. And now believers have conquered Satan. He's been conquered by believers by the word of their testimony and by the blood of the lamb. Well, how does that work? Well, the blood of the lamb. Now that Jesus has come and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, Satan can no longer accuse us as though we had no substitute or as though we had no savior who's paid for our sins. And Satan's accusations of our ongoing sin carry no weight because we are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So Satan may try to accuse us, but the accusations have far less sting now. What do you mean, Satan, I'm a sinner? Of course I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. Yeah, so I'm saved by him. Yeah, so nice try. I'm a sinner. Yep, those are the ones Jesus came to save. Oh, what about your continual sins? Oh, I stand in the blood. I'm covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm made acceptable to God by him, and I trust in him. So Satan's accusations have lost their sting. That is one of the ways on that ground we have overcome or conquered Satan. But the second thing in verse 11, the second way we've, Satan has been conquered by believers is the word of our testimony, the word of believers' testimony. So no longer is Satan deceiving the nations. No longer does Satan have the upper hand, as it were, in the world. Now the word of witness about Jesus Christ has gone out and is going out. It's the word of our testimony. Believers are speaking, talking to others, on the, and on this ground that believers talk about Jesus, Satan is conquered. And you can see it, beloved. We're sitting here in Pella, Iowa. We are thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. We don't live anywhere near Palestine or the Promised Land or the land of Canaan. And we believe this is indeed how Satan is conquered on the ground of the word of the testimony of believers. What happened after the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Christians talked. They spoke. 
And on that ground that Christians speak about Jesus Christ, tell others, the Holy Spirit filling them, causing them to tell others about Christ, Satan is a conquered foe and the gospel spreads all through the world. Now it's interesting that Jesus promised this very thing would happen in Matthew 16, verse 15. Jesus said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you by my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now notice that Jesus says in that passage that he's going to build his church on this rock. Well, what's the rock? It's not Peter himself. It's what Peter just got done saying as an apostle, part of the foundation of the church. What did Peter just say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. So it's Peter confessing who Jesus is. That's the rock. And it's the church in her witness confessing who Jesus is. Peter being an apostle, part of the foundation stones of the whole church. That's what God uses to build his church. And did you hear the prospects of the church? The gates of hell won't prevail, right? So notice gates are defensive again. Many commentators point this out. I think there's something to it. That hell is envisioned, as it were, as a city with walls and gates. And the church is now on the offensive. We're not in a defensive posture. We're on the offensive with this word of testimony about Jesus Christ. And you can imagine we have like battering rams or telephone poles or whatever you want to envision we're using. But the hell's gates are there and we're battering them down, beating them down, pulling souls out one at a time. The gates of hell will not prevail. Indeed, they will not hold up. And everyone who belongs to Satan, many of the people who belong to Satan who are now living in darkness will actually be brought out. And the church will continue to conquer Satan by the word of her testimony. Now, that is the same picture as in Revelation 12, 11. They've conquered him by the word of their testimony for they've loved not their lives even unto death. By the word of our testimony, the gates of hell will not prevail. When we go out and talk to others about the Lord Jesus Christ, which is again, what just Christians do, the gates of hell won't prevail. And on the ground that Christians share the gospel, testifying to Jesus as the crucified and risen savior, as the savior of sinners and the king of kings, unafraid to die for the sake of Christ, Satan is conquered. And this is where things get really interesting and painful for believers. If you come back to Revelation 12, Satan knows he's running on empty. He knows he's on his last leg. He's been thrown down. He knows he's already a conquered foe by the blood of the lamb. He knows he's a conquered foe by the word of the testimony of these people that he hates, these believers, these Christians that the Holy Spirit saves, that God saves. He knows he's a conquered foe, and he knows something. He knows he doesn't have a chance of defeating God. That, that passed. Remember when Jesus came into this world, Satan was licking his chops. Now's my chance. Now maybe I can pull it off, which is why he was all about trying to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. He had his chance when Jesus was born. But now there's no way for Satan to undo the atonement. There is no way for Satan to, to undo the resurrection. That's finished. His battle with God is definitively over. But there is something that he's allowed to do and that he can do. And that is war against God's people. His time to destroy the Christ is past. But now he's turned his attention 
to destroying God's people. And if you read verses 12 to 13, the impression is made upon each of us that Satan is desperate and he's eager. Woe to you, O earth and sea. Why? Why would woe be pronounced upon the earth and the sea? For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Satan knows his time is short. It's interesting. He's aware of this. He knows his days are numbered. He knows he's a conquered foe and that the time of his termination will end up in the lake of fire and sulfur is closing in soon. And so he's doing everything in his power to destroy the people of God, the people that God has saved. Now, knowing his time is short, what does Satan do? He goes after God's people, beginning with the first generation of believers after Pentecost, including the apostles. We might turn this the early church, verses 13 and 15. He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to keep her away with a flood, to sweep her away with a flood. But he also goes after the woman's children, which is believers after the apostles, as it were. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Satan is trying to destroy the church as a whole. He wants the whole thing gone. He wants rid of God's people. He does not want heaven filled with people praising God. He wants hell filled with people praising him, or at least to be in his miserable company, as it were. So Satan is trying to destroy the church, and it's important for us to know his tactics. 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul writes, So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. It is very helpful, beloved, to know the tactics of our enemy. And we're told in this passage, actually, there's two tactics that Satan has. And we need to know his designs so that we're not outwitted by him and confused by him. So Satan uses two things to try to destroy God's church. Persecution and false teaching, very simple. We're going to walk through and look at those and also look in the context of each of those, how God preserves his church. His church excuse me. So first, Satan uses two things to try to destroy God's church. Number one, persecution. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The language of pursued, translated in ESV, pursued, is the generic word for to pursue or to persecute. It means to hurry after someone in order to catch up with them with the implication of doing them harm, especially in this context. So he's persecuting the woman. He's coming after the woman, not to bless her, not to shake her hand, not to say, hey, it's so good to know you. But he wants to destroy her. That's what persecution is, running somebody down in order to destroy them. Revelation 2 verse 10 talks about this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. Lord Jesus makes it really clear. The devil is going to throw people in prison, believers in prison. That's part of his persecution work. In our current day, all over the world, we could spend hours on this. Uh, Somalia is a predominantly Muslim country, so much so that it's the overwhelming expectation society that citizens are Muslim. And if you believe in Jesus in Somalia, having converted from Islam, one major militia group, their name I can't pronounce, considers you a high-value target. And some believers are killed as soon as they're discovered, just for believing in Jesus. Persecution, the devil chasing after God's people to remove them from this earth. 
North Korea, if you're found out as a Christian in North Korea, you and your entire family will either be killed on the spot or put in work camps and either tortured or worked to death, as is often the case. In Yemen, the population is so overwhelmingly Muslim and it is illegal to convert that it's illegal to convert to Christianity. People who convert to Christianity mainly live undercover. And if they're found out, they're imprisoned, beat up or killed. And there's currently a civil war going on in the country, which uh, is interesting for believers because a lot of the aid is actually distributed through Muslims and through mosques. And so if you're a Christian, you, if you're living in Yemen, you will oftentimes not have enough to eat because the aid is not getting to you. But despite the persecution of the devil, the Lord brings into the lives of God's people deliverance and protection in a way that's quite profound. Satan can't destroy your faith, but he can make you pay for it. He can't take your faith away, but he can make it extremely painful to live in faith. And all throughout church history, Satan has used the power of pain to get believers to deny Jesus as Lord and thus destroy the witness, the word of their testimony. Pain is powerful. Pain and suffering cause people to do pretty much anything to alleviate it. And Satan knows this. He knows that much. He's not omniscient, but he knows enough. So as much as is possible, he inflicts pain in the lives of believers in order to try to turn them away from Jesus and destroy the word of their testimony. And he's either doing it to you or he's scheming about how to do it to you and me soon. That's how he works. Again, he's not omnipresent, but he's doing these things or he's scheming about how he can do it to us. And verse 17 is interesting if you look at that in Revelation 12 and that it describes believers a certain way and I think it's instructive for us. It says, believer, there are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, why in verse 17 are believers described this way, the children of the woman? I think it's this way, I think it we're described this way for a reason. Believers are those who keep God's commandments. Not perfectly, not as a means of salvation, but believers obey God because he saved us by grace and filled us with his Holy Spirit. Therefore, Satan uses pain to try to get us to disobey God. Remember, he's against God's people. We're described as those who obey the commandments. What do you think Satan's trying to do to each of us? Get us to disobey? Come after us and use pain to make us a disobedient people? Believers are those who also testify to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, who believe Jesus is Lord, who believe that Jesus is the only one who can save and that all who believe in him have eternal life. Therefore, Satan uses pain to try to get us to deny Jesus and to stop telling others about Jesus. In other words, he uses pain to try to get us to stop speaking or to stop spreading the word of our testimony. But in the midst of Satan's painful attacks, persecuting the church, trying to use pain to destroy the church, we see that God actually watches out for his people. Verse 14 the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The language of two wings of the great eagle is almost straight out of Exodus 19. Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God delivers his people into a place where they are nourished, the church he gives them redemption, as it were, or a reprieve, or a way to be saved out of this in so many ways and preserved and then nourished. Catch the language of nourishing. It's literally just a feed. She's nourished for time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half years. Time is one year, times is two years, half a times is a half a year. Again, as we noticed 
a couple weeks ago that if you had dropped the language of three and a half years to any Jew who would have read the book of the Revelation, they would have immediately conjured up that time when Antiochus Epiphanes IV from 167 to 164 BC persecuted the Jews in Jerusalem heavily, killing tens of thousands of them. And we mentioned that was a reference to the time between Jesus' first and second coming, which is a time where God's people are in general persecuted by foreign enemies, by people who hate them. But notice that God gives the church a place to be nourished during that time too. God watches over his church. He protects his church. He will always have for himself a remnant of people on this earth to bear testimony to him. You can see this in Acts 8 verses 1 and 4. Early church persecution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Isn't that amazing? Satan brings pain. Satan brings difficulty. Satan through Saul before he's converted on the road to Damascus brings a lot of suffering into the lives of believers. And what does God do? He preserves his church. He actually spreads the church. He makes the church bigger. <laughs> You're going to make life for my people harder? Great, I'm just going to send them out of Jerusalem and I'm going to have them tell hundreds more whom they never could have told if they were still sitting comfortably in Jerusalem. So Satan brings pain and God spreads the message and sustains his people through the pain. Nancy Guthrie in her book on Revelation, I think some of the uh, sisters here are reading it, wrote, the message of Revelation to you and me is this, yes, doing battle against the devil may mean that you lose a lot in this life. You might lose your reputation, your friends, your job, you might even lose your life. But to live and die in the Lord will turn out for your blessing. To live your days on this earth all out for Christ, no matter what assault the devil sends your way, is true victory, not defeat. You won't regret it. Your life won't be over. You will awake to find yourself among the many who have laid down their lives for the gospel before you. Jesus himself will comfort and reward you. So the devil tries to get people to walk away from Jesus. He tries to destroy the church through pain, through persecution, through death. What he doesn't understand is that if you kill a believer, you're just speeding up their joy. <laughs> now they're in heaven. Now they don't have to bear any more cross in this world. Now they get to go be with the Lord. The second way he tries to destroy the church, the first way is through persecution. The second way is through false teaching. If you look at verse 15, we're told the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Verse 15, to sweep her away with a flood. There were many times that water threatened to wipe out God's people in the old covenant. Think Noah's flood. Think crossing of the Red Sea when they were trying to escape Pharaoh. Think crossing of the Jordan River when they're entering into the promised land. So there's this stuff, there's this river of water coming out of the, the serpent's mouth, as it were. And it's seeking to destroy and drown and sweep away this woman. But notice that it's coming out of his mouth, verse 15. It's literally out of his mouth. And out of his mouth speaks to words and speech that are meant to harm the people of God and to sweep them away and to carry them off and destroy them. This is nothing other than the image of false teaching. And the false prophet's going to be raised up uh, very shortly after. We're not going to be looking at that. But it's the image of Satan using false teaching out of his mouth to try and destroy God's church. 
He's been doing this for a very long time. The church at Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, this was happening in the first century where Satan was trying to deceive God's people. We were told this, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Clement of Alexandria said about this church, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. There were false teachers who perverted God's grace into lawlessness. Hey, God's gracious. He's forgiving. He's merciful. All your sins are forgiven. You can go live however you want right now. Lots of teachers have taught that. It began even in the first century. There are plenty of people who, claiming to believe in Jesus, even genuine followers of the Lord, bought into that and were tremendously harmed. And Satan's cause advanced. And if you turn to the book of Galatians, there were Judaizers, people going around saying, yeah, believe in Jesus, sure. Yep, the gospel, yep, believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Just do one more thing for us, add circumcision. Just do that, okay? And then we'll have fellowship with each other and we'll say you're really saved. Gotta believe in Jesus, but then you gotta be circumcised too, which is a Jesus plus gospel. Hey, believe in Jesus and do something else. It's prevalent all over the world, beloved. Probably not via circumcision so much anymore. But hey, believe in Jesus plus add what? Get a bit of a cleaned up life. You got to show that you've made enough progress. Uh, believe in Jesus and have this view of whatever commandment your geographical region wants to highlight as the most important. And Pella, it's been Sundays for a while. Now, the way you really know someone's a Christian is if they believe in Jesus, but also the way they do Sunday is X, Y, or Z. But it changes all over the world, beloved. It's really subtle, isn't it? Yeah, believe in Jesus. We're saved by grace. He does 99.9% of it. You just have to do this 0.1%, and then you're saved. It's straight out of the pit of hell, as it were. And make no mistake, Satan works tremendously hard on the church, trying to destroy her from within. Paul told the Ephesian elders on the shore when he was saying his farewell to them, Acts 20, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Catch this, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. That's not an external problem. That's an internal problem. He's saying from among your own selves, this is going to happen. And John tells all of us believers in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. In other words, be discerning. Don't believe everything you hear. John's saying very kindly to us as Christians. There's a lot of people who are just so gullible. Everything that they hear from anyone about Christianity, they just take as gospel truth. And John's saying, don't do that. There's a lot of people who go out into the world and they're just falsely teaching. They're not rightly dividing the word of truth. Don't listen to everything that you hear. Read your Bibles. What are some false teachings prevalent in the church today? I want to pause just to consider this. We're not living in the first century, dealing with Jezebel or the Nicolaitans, but we're living in 2023, and Satan is continuing to spread false teaching all throughout the church. Now, we could spend literally probably days here, right? And some of you would have a lot more to say than I would. But there's a few of them that are fairly prevalent, and I want to tease them out a bit. Again, not to bash anybody, but just to, so that we're not ignorant of his devices, so that we're not outwitted by Satan. There's a teaching in the church that says you deserve better. A teaching 
which panders to our sort of pride and selfishness, saying that we deserve better jobs or toys or a better life. Your life should be like it was in the Garden of Eden. You deserve to have that kind of life here and now. And indeed, God wants you to have that life here and now, as if we can get heaven sort of faster than other people or other believers on this earth. And the truth of the matter is that each one of us deserves hell and misery because of our sin. We know that. We don't deserve God's grace, but he's given it to us freely in Christ. And he said, you know what? You're going to end up in a place that's better than the Garden of Eden, but you're just going to have to wait. And what this false teaching says is, why do you have to wait? You don't have to wait. There's no cross before the crown. There's no pain and suffering and tribulation by which you enter into the kingdom. No, you can have all the glory of heaven right now. Again, that's a, that's a deception, beloved. That's a false teaching. Jesus' teaching is actually directly opposed to that kind of teaching. There's another teaching that goes like this. Strong faith equals health and money. Weak faith equals sickness and poverty. Again, straight out of uh, the pit of hell, straight out of Satan's mouth. I don't need to tell you how ridiculous this is. The apostle Paul was often weak and died in poverty. Jesus himself died poor. Timothy was sickly. I can still remember sitting in a worship service. I've mentioned this to you on a different occasion, I think in Sunday school, where the pastor, we were visiting different churches, which is fine. We visited different Jewish synagogues. And uh, sometimes, yeah, it's hard to do that when you're uh, doing pulpit supply and so every Sunday. So we actually took time to go visit a church and this pastor did a, a cell phone healing service. <laughs> and he had everybody who knew someone who was sick, call them up, call the sick person, and then hold the cell phone up when they were done. And so there were hundreds of lights. Uh, it was a group of, I don't know, a thousand or 2000 people. It was a big group, big church. And he prayed for those people through their cell phones and he declared them healed on the spot, declared them healed. And then in order to probably save his job, qualified it later after everybody had hung up, speaking something about, well, either if you don't believe or they don't believe, you have to have strong enough faith in order for this to happen. Catch the teaching. If you have strong enough faith, then you'll have lots of money and you'll be healed. That's what was going on. That's what was taught. Again, I don't, for the life of me, I don't understand why there was a single person who returned to that church the next week or the week after, but I'm sure there were hundreds or thousands of people there. I would assume you'd make a phone call right after church saying, are you healed? No. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to transfer my membership, or at least I'm going to be going somewhere else. But this is prevalent, beloved. And people are guilted into thinking this. Oh, if you, if you don't have enough money, you're not healed fully of everything, that it's your lack of faith. Again, a very deceitful teaching. You can have the strongest faith in the world, beloved, and be sick and live paycheck to paycheck. And if you don't believe me, look at the lives of the apostles. Just their lives is all the farther you have to go to put to death that lie from Satan. The third one I was noticing is God wants you to feel good, so do what feels good. And this is another one of Satan's lies. If you're going to do what feels good, you're going to live a life of rampant sin. If we're going to do what feels good, we're going to live lives of chaos and confusion because anyone who knows their emotions knows that feelings come and go within a half a second, don't they? Go do what feels good. Well, what happens if I feel like doing two conflicting things? I don't know what to do then. It's a, it's a horrible, chaotic, confusing life. This lifestyle of doing what feels good is often equated with life in the spirit as if one of the fruit of the spirit was feeling good. And it sounds good, right? Doesn't it sound good to tell people that God wants them to feel good rather than bad, right? 
And we say that God does want us all feeling good and we'll all feel good in heaven when we get there. But in the here and now, God's interested in our holiness, beloved. He's interested in death to ourselves. He's interested in living for Christ. Well, oftentimes that involves what? Self-denial, pain, difficulty. (laughs) It involves having to make God number one, not our feelings number one. God the Holy Spirit together with God the Father and God the Son are all on the same page as each other. They want us to become more like Jesus Christ. And sometimes, oftentimes, that will mean it doesn't really feel good, that our life feels bad because we're putting something to death and having to put on something that's really strange and awkward feeling called obedience and called service to the Lord. Here's another one, another false teaching from Satan. Good choices will bring a pain-free life that teaches you that if you study hard in school, work hard, have a great devotional and prayer life, faithfully use your gifts in the church and beyond, then your life will be wonderful and pain-free. In other words, the best way to ward off suffering is to make good choices. And Paul made the best choices imaginable and his life was filled with near constant pain and sorrow. 2 Corinthians 1.8, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Jesus was perfect in all of his choices. But we're told he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and he was crucified for our sins. So good choices will bring a pain-free life. What about those people who go to the mission field, maybe make the best choice of all and they go serve the Lord there? Just read a few of their journals and we'll discover soon that good choices don't somehow equate to a pain-free life. Now, are we supposed to be wise in our decision-making? Of course, yes. But sometimes that'll bear tremendous blessedness. Sometimes it'll bear tremendous pain. And then one more. If you try really hard to be a good person, God will accept you for trying. I'm guessing this is maybe the most prominent one in the lives of unbelievers. If you had asked the average unbeliever, hey, how do you become a Christian? What does Christianity teach? What's at the heart of the Christian message? A lot of them would say this, that if you just try hard, God will take care of the rest. If you try hard to be a good person, try hard to obey, know the Ten Commandments, love your neighbor as yourself, love God above all, God will make up the difference. He'll make up our lack. And it shouldn't surprise us that unbelievers think this way. But what should surprise us is that many Christians think this way too. If I try really hard to obey to be good, then God will accept me for trying really hard. But the Bible teaches something radically different. The Apostle Paul tried harder than anyone on the planet, didn't he? In fact, he was even born into the right situation. You can't, you can't, we can't do anything about where we were born. He was born into the right situation. He was trained by the right guy. He knew the law. He strove toward obedience. He was so zealous, he was killing people. He was blameless before others. And you know what he said of all that? Trying hard in order to be acceptable to God when he found Jesus. He said, I call it all the stuff that comes out of the south end of a north-facing cow. I call it a cow pie. It's just dung. That's it. That's all it is. It's rubbish. What do you mean, Paul, that you, you, you don't think that all of your work, all of your striving, all of your knowledge, all of your zeal, that doesn't count for anything before God to be acceptable by him and to be welcomed into heaven? He said, not, a, not even close. The way to be found is to be found in Christ, having his righteousness, not my own. That's entrance into eternal life. It's a great, great false teaching that exists in the world. Try really hard to be a good person. 
and God will accept you. There's only ever been one way for a human being to be acceptable to God, and that's by trusting in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, in his efforts, in his obedience. Notice verse 16 as an encouragement to us. The earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. The Israelites walked through the Red Sea and the Jordan River on dry ground, so the Lord provides a way for his church to survive in the midst of false teaching. It's even a little bit of a depiction of the sons of Korah when the earth opened up. And everything horrible for the church just falls away because God's protecting his people. So beloved, pain and false teaching, those are two powerful tools the devil uses to try to destroy Christ's church and to destroy you and to destroy me. But God will sustain his church and the Lord will sustain and nourish you. He who is in you is stronger than he who's in the world. Let's pray.